Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Monday. Hope everyone had a great weekend. If you haven't listened to Friday's episode yet, when I talked to Rebecca Friedrichs about the ins and outs of the public school system and public unions, I encourage you to do that. Very fascinating and motivating conversation. Make sure that you go out and get her book as well. Today, the theme of this episode is... Uh, This is my father's world. So you guys might know if you follow me on Instagram, this is my favorite hymn. I feel like I post the lyrics to this hymn uh, a lot, like every week, because it's constantly in my head. This is one of my favorite uh, hymns to, to sing and just to meditate on. And it's such a comfort when it seems like things are constantly thrown into a state of chaos, especially in 2020 when we can't trust our leaders, when we're constantly seeing the hypocrisy of our leaders, many of whom are saying, you can't go to church, and if you can't go to church, it has to be outside, or you can't have an ensemble or a choir, you have to have a soloist, you can't worship the way that you want to worship, who are telling us that you need to shut down your small business, who are saying you can't hold a funeral, you can't have your wedding, you can't walk across the stage at graduation, you can't get together for Thanksgiving or Christmas, your kid can't go to school, your seven-year-old needs to sit in front of a screen for eight hours a day, while, for example, public school teachers in a place like Seattle have decided, uh, this particular public school teacher, she wrote her seventh grade teacher, or her seventh grade student that she was going to be in a forest. And so she wasn't going to have internet connection to be able to teach their class. There are stories like that that are happening all across our public school system in the United States as kids are suffering, even while the leaders who are forcing this to happen are doing as they please. Gavin Newsom was just caught having an expensive maskless dinner with a bunch of his friends in California. Governor Cuomo has been seen without a mask as well as his brother, Andrew Cuomo. We have seen Lori Lightfoot and Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, all pro-lockdown Democratic politicians breaking the rules of uh, not wearing a mask and being in crowded areas without any kind of socially uh, social distancing while they are telling us that we have to stop our lives. We have to stop doing the things uh, that societies have always had to do to survive and thrive, which is social interaction, which is the education of our children, which is familial bonding. Uh, These politicians do not trust us to make the decisions that are best for us and best for our families, but they trust themselves, which shows me a real malice and a real resentment against their constituents. I said recently that these politicians who are doing these things, who are stopping you uh, from living your life and to doing the things that are very essential for you to survive and thrive, that they hate you. And I got some pushback on that from people who say, oh, no, it's not hate. They're just doing what's best. It's not doing what's best when they say, do as I say, not as I do, rules for thee and not for me. That is not doing what's best. That is not in our interest. It might not be an intentional malice. It might not be an active resentment, but it does show an underlying, maybe even subconscious hatred 
towards their constituents and towards common people. You know, a lot of people have been talking about, and I told you that we were going to talk about this today. And um, unfortunately, I haven't completed all of the research that I need to give you a thorough explanation of the Great Reset. But I will comment on it that we have seen a lot of politicians, including Justin Trudeau in Canada and Democratic politicians here, say that uh, the chaos and the calamity that we have experienced as a, a public health crisis and an economic crisis in 2020 is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for um, a new order. And I'm not trying to use that in the conspiratorial sense. I'm talking about um, a, a reordering of our economic system and our social system in a way that they would say, quote, takes care of people, which we know is newspeak for uh, more leftist policies. They have talked about uh, using this crisis and basically using their constituents' pain as a way to uh, push their policies. I don't know what you call that, um, except for resentment, except for malice, except for, at the very least, an ignorance and an apathy towards the pain of average uh, working people. And I don't think that they that they factored in that we would see their hypocrisy and that we wouldn't go along with it, that we would realize, hey, I'm giving a lot of money and a lot of power to these people who don't seem to have my best interest at heart, who promised me that if I voted for them, that they would take care of me and they would take care especially of vulnerable populations, that if I gave them more of my money, more of my tax dollars, then they would pass programs and policies that would help take care of the working people in this country. And they haven't done that. They've lined their pockets and they have used their privilege, their platform, and their power to uh, to escape the rules that they are burdening the rest of the country with. I don't think they realized that we would see what they were up to and that we wouldn't go along uh, with the pushing uh, with the pushing towards leftism that inevitably gives the government more power. I hope that we can see right, left, and center that the government does not deserve your uh, power. To It doesn't deserve uh, you to give up your autonomy and your authority. It doesn't deserve more of your money. And I don't care if it's a Republican politician that misuses our funds. I don't care if it's a Democratic politician that misuses our funds. I don't care if it's hypocrisy coming from the right or the left. I don't like it. I don't want it. That's why I consistently vote uh, for politicians who at least say, they don't always do, but say that they are going to, uh, that they are going to uh, make sure that the government has as little authority over our lives as possible and doesn't fight to take more of my money uh, towards ineffective programs and uh, towards enriching lifelong politicians. That is my political position. It's now more than ever. I see these tiny tyrants that are passing and pushing these unscientific and arbitrary regulations that are literally ruining the lives of small business owners, of students, of children, of vulnerable populations everywhere. Meanwhile, people like Governor Cuomo, where thousands and thousands of people have died in his state, uh, just passed uh, uh, the the new budget for the new year that gives him a $25,000 raise, even as people have lost their jobs and shut down their businesses because of his lockdown policies that are based not on science, but on politics. Those are the people that are in charge. Why in the world would we ever vote for politicians who want more power, who want more money, who promise that this time, this time, if you give us, if you give us money, if you vote for higher taxes, if you trust us to enact these programs that are going to take care of the poor and the vulnerable and the students, we'll do it. They won't. They won't. We need to get out and hopefully 
all of this, this uh, pandemic and the regulations that are the consequence of it. Well, not I wouldn't even say the consequence of it, but just a part of it. Politicians have made sure of that, that what happens is not a shift towards the left and a shift towards more of a government takeover. So they get more of our money to redistribute to other people, but a realization among the populace that the government in general is not to be trusted. That doesn't mean that every politician is a bad person. Doesn't mean that they're all hypocrites or that they're all immoral, but power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And the more power and the more money that you give politicians, and this is typically a democratic party platform, although Republicans fight in some way for big government too, especially establishment Republicans, that means that we need to vote against those people. We need to push them out. We need to give as little power to the government over our lives as humanly possible. We see that they do not treat groups fairly. You've got places like Nevada where casinos are able to operate at least at half capacity, but churches are not. Uh, You see strip clubs in certain states that are allowed to operate at at least 25% capacity, but churches are still forced to congregate outside. It doesn't make any sense. It's a violation of your First Amendment, and the politicians that are in power do not care. It's not about public health. It is about which special interest groups are lining their pockets. It's about keeping power, and it's about time that we all wake up to that reality and the corruption that is in in our bureaucracy and vote the heck against it. There is uh, there are a few things that make me more mad than the misuse of power at the expense of vulnerable people that's been happening in this country on the right and the left for too long. It's about time we wake up to it and we realize not that, hey, this is a scamdemic or hey, this virus isn't real. We know it's real. We know that it's hurting people. We know that it can kill people. My position has always been that people should be able to make the decision that is best for them, that businesses should be able to make the decision that is best for them, take the precautions that they want to take, that people... Most people don't want to get sick. Most people don't want to get vulnerable sick. People who are scared of the virus will stay home. People will wash their hands. People will wear masks if they want to wear masks. But what we've seen from the undiscerning politicians who are in charge is that they really have no moral authority and uh, no scientific basis for the policies that they are placing on us and, and that they are not good at leading us. Most of the politicians are not good at leading us. And so my simple position is is not that the virus isn't real and that you shouldn't take it seriously. It's that we should be able to make the decisions that are best for us and best for our family when it comes to this. You should not force a business to close its doors and then uh, spend all of your time in Washington quibbling over whether or not you're going to send stimulus checks to these people after you have ruined their lives and driven some of these people into loneliness-induced depression and suicide. I mean, it's gross. It's gross. And I hope I, if we can all come together on at least this, on at least, uh, at least the fact that more bureaucracy breeds corruption, that the more power and money that we give to the government, the worse they are, not the better they are, then the better off we'll be, even if we disagree on our on our policy positions, but we've at least got to get there. That's the direction that I hope all of this takes us, that people wake up and realize, hey, I think it's best for me and my family to make our own decisions. We'll take our own precautions on Thanksgiving. Thank you very much, Gavin Newsom and Governor Inslee and Governor Cuomo. We'll decide what's best for us and our family. We'll decide what's best for our elderly parents. Guess what? 
You care more about your family. You care more about your kids. You care more about your elderly parents and grandparents than the state does. So whatever regulation they try to push on you in the name of compassion, it needs to be weighed against the love and the care and the knowledge that you have of the people in your life that is far greater far greater than what uh, the state has and what the state feels for the people in your life and isn't contradicted and opposed by your own special interests. You are going to do what's best for your elderly parent. I guarantee it in a way that Governor Cuomo and other governors and Lori Lightfoot, uh, no matter no matter what they say, they do not care about your parents and your grandparents the way that you do. They do not care about your kids the way that you do. You are going to make the best choice for you and your family. These politicians are not. So tell them to shove it and say that now's the time that we are going to make the decisions that are best for us. We're going to be making the choices from here on out. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That is where I want us to head when um, in, in the middle of this as they are trying to actually shift more power to the government in the name of taking care of people. I hope that we wake up and shift away from that and realize that we are run by a bunch of corrupt, hypocritical tyrants that have a real resentment and feeling of condescension towards you, their constituents. Now, what does this have to do with the theme of today's episode? Um, Because I know that a lot of us are very discouraged that we are looking at some of the regulations in our state and in our county, and we're worried about our kids who are now being reforced to sit in front of a screen all day with no social interaction. Uh, We are Uh, worried and sad about our communities that aren't able to attend church in person. We are worried that they are never going to give up the power that they have been given, that they are going to continue to violate our First Amendment rights. They are going to continue to use so-called public health crises to take away our liberty. And I just want to remind you who the absolute authority is in the world, and that is the creator of the universe, Uh, the father of Christians. He is our good shepherd. He is the one who takes care of us. He is who our rights come from. And ultimately, we serve him. Jesus tells us, I think it's Matthew 11, not to be scared of the person who can kill the body, but to fear the one who can uh, throw body and soul into hell. So it is God who is to solicit our fear. He is to solicit our worship and our unconditional following. That doesn't mean that we rebel against the government for the sake of rebellion. That's not what I'm saying. That's not to say that we shouldn't submit to civil authorities in every way that we can without sinning. We should. Romans 13 tells us that we should as long as it doesn't cause us to sin. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for the people in power. I've already prayed. I pray for Democratic politicians. Uh, I will pray for Joe Biden. I've already prayed for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. If they officially take office in January, then I will continue to pray for them. And I hope will hope the best for this country under their leadership, even knowing where I can anticipate their policies taking us into. And it's not to a good place. So I'm not saying that we uh, that we shouldn't hope and pray for the welfare and the well-being and the good leadership of our politicians, even the ones that we are not in agreement with. I'm not saying that we should rebel for the sake of rebellion. I am saying that when it comes down to it, we are called to follow the Lord and not any man. And we are supposed to live in a country of the people, for the people, and by the people, that we are governed by the people, that the people in office work for us us, not the other way around. Unfortunately, we've seen, especially this year, those roles seem to have reversed. And we have a right, we have a responsibility, we have an obligation for the well-being of all people
people, all demographics, all socioeconomic classes to hold our leaders accountable and to remind them that, hey, you work for us. And we as Christians are not under the authority of the state. The state doesn't get to say, the state does not get to say how a church can worship. They don't. That's a violation of the First Amendment. They do not have authority over the church. You know, it's funny. A lot of people on the left, they love the phrase separation of church and state, even though it's nowhere in the Constitution. But I do believe that it is an important principle. It is meant to separate. It is meant to protect the the state from the church in that the state is not supposed to establish uh, a nationwide religion, as the First Amendment says, but it's also meant to protect the church from the state. And it is that that leftists typically don't realize and they don't actually care about. So they'll use separation of church and state when it comes to, for example, abortion regulation, which is very stupid. That's a terrible argument, as if you uh, need the church to tell you, uh, as if you you need ch- uh, a church-influenced policy to say that you shouldn't murder. Like, murder is against the law. All we're saying is that the murder of unborn children should be lumped into that as well. Um, so they love to use the separation of church and state in an argument like that, which doesn't make any logical or constitutional legal sense, moral sense whatsoever. But when it comes to Governor Inslee in Washington saying, hey, church, you can't meet except in the way that I want you to meet or Nevada or any of these more liberal states or even places like Ohio saying churches, this is what you have to do. You don't hear anyone on the left saying, oh, separation of church and state, the church needs to be protected from the state, even though that is a part of what the separation of church and state means. It's just very interesting, uh, the duplicity there. But that is an important principle in that the church is supposed to be protected from the state. And we are supposed to live in a country that honors that, that honors the First Amendment. There is not an asterisk uh, beside the First Amendment that says, except in a time of a pandemic. All I'm saying is that people should be trusted. People should be trusted to make the choices that are best for them and are best for their family because ultimately our inherent rights that are recognized in the Constitution come from the God who created rights, the God who created morality. And uh, the people who don't like that, who say, no, we started as a secular nation, no, we did not. The separation of church and state means that there's not going to be an establishment of the church by the state. There shouldn't be an infiltration of the church by the state either. And that, uh, but it does not mean the separation of God in law. Our laws were based on biblical principles of things like due process and property rights. Uh, Do not murder. That's a biblical principle. The idea of natural rights, that's God's idea. Uh, The law, any law against theft, that was first God's law to Israel. And so, yes, the foundation of this country, the idea that we were all created equal, endowed by a creator with certain inalienable rights, that comes from God. And we see what happens when we move away from any kind of biblical ethic or biblical idea of natural rights, biblical idea of property rights, of human dignity. We see all kinds of perversion, all kinds of immorality, and not only that, but the surrendering of liberty. That always goes part and parcel uh, with the pushing away of God-given rights and God's idea of what is right and what is wrong. You see that in every society where God gets smaller, the government gets bigger, and suffering expands for the constituents, for the people. 
here's one really good example of our culture and just universally, when we move away from God, we embrace other types of immorality um, that damage, especially vulnerable groups, but really all people. And that is this, uh, that's this article uh, in The Atlantic talking about the last children of Down syndrome. It says prenatal testing is changing who gets born and who doesn't. This is just the beginning. And so we are going to talk about how this is a perversion and a stepping away from the Christian ethic on life that has been so beneficial to the world at large, but especially the Western world. And what are the consequences of that? of us giving authority to people who do not have the authority, uh, who do not have the authority to say what life is precious and what life is no longer valuable. When we step away from the biblical ethic of all life, including life inside the womb, is dignified, made in the image of God, and therefore is worth protection, we will talk about the consequences of what happens when we step away from the idea that this is our father's world and he defines what is good and what is not, what is life and what is not, what is valuable and what is not. But first we have to take a quick ad break. Okay, guys, want to tell you about Fundrise. So you might have heard the term diversified portfolio. You've heard people say that you need stocks, bonds, mutual funds. But if you have spent any time looking into this, if you've wondered, hey, what is a diversified portfolio? And I'm an adult now. Maybe I need to look into this kind of thing. And you've actually seen the most successful portfolios. You will typically see a diversified set of real estate. So why isn't one of the first uh, asset classes you consider when you're looking to diversify real estate? It's because that hasn't been accessible to just normal investors like you and me, but that is why Fundrise exists. They make it easy for all kinds of investors to diversify their portfolios by building you a portfolio of institutional quality real estate investments. So whether you're just starting to invest in real estate or you're looking to add more to your already very diversified portfolio, your friends at Fundrise have you covered. Here's exactly how it works. Breaks down really simply. It's an investing platform that makes investing in high quality, high potential real estate as easy as investing in your favorite stock or mutual fund. Whether you're looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or prefer long-term growth or appreciation, Fundrise has got you covered. To date, Fundrise manages more than $1 billion in assets for over 130,000 investors. And since 2014, the Fundrise platform has averaged 8.7 to 12.4% annual returns in investors. Uh, They have earned more than $79 million in dividends alone. Typically, when you think of investors, you think of people that are super wealthy and super rich and have it all together. That's not necessarily true. Uh, We should be diversifying our investment portfolio you know, as we're young and even as we're starting out. And a place like Fundrise can really help you do that. Their team of real estate professionals carefully vet and actively manage all of their real estate projects. And with their easy-to-use website, you can track your portfolio's performance and watch as properties across the country are acquired, improved, and operated via asset updates. 
Start building your better portfolio today. Get started at fundrise.com slash relatable to have your first 90 days of advisory advisory fees waived. So that first uh, three months that you work with Fundrise, you get all those fees waived, which is a really good deal. Go to fundrise.com slash relatable to have your first 90 days of advisory fees waived. Fundrise.com slash relatable. Okay, so when we're talking about uh, the authority of God over the heavens and the earth, one of the most important things that we can be reminded of is that God created life and human life. A human life is different than animal life. Uh, God created man and woman in his image. He didn't create anything else in his image. When we look at the creation account in the first few chapters of Genesis, we see that God uh, likes, he loves everything that he creates. He makes the sun and the moon and the stars and the animals and, and the fish and the ocean and the water. And he separates all of these things exactly how he wants to. Everything God does, this is one thing I just love about the nature of God. He does nothing accidentally. He does nothing arbitrarily. Everything is by process, even things that sometimes you wonder, why didn't God just snap his fingers and allow everything to happen at once? But if you look at the very beginning of the biblical canon, the very beginning of time, uh, God does things systematically. He does things in an order. He does things in a process. You see that, especially in the history of Israel as well, that he commands Israel to do certain things. He uh, commanded Moses, for example, strike this rock and water will come out um, and uh, and, uh, and uh, honey will come out in one example. Um and you sometimes wonder, like, why didn't God just provide these things? Or when he instructed Israel to go pick up manna, why didn't God just give them manna in a basket if he could do that? But almost every miracle or everything that we see God do throughout the Bible, there is a process. There is even when humans are involved, an act of obedience that is required in order for God to accomplish his purpose. God could snap his metaphorical fingers and make things happen exactly how he wants it to. But we very rarely see things be automatic in the Bible. And that's actually very important for us as we think about the world and his authority over it, God's purposeful process in all that he does. Today, uh, people tend to believe this humanistic philosophy is that everything is basically arbitrary. You've heard me say that leftism, uh, humanism gets human nature wrong in the nature versus nurture debate. We very often hear uh, that from leftists that everything is nurture. So um, gender is this malleable thing that can be changed based on societal whims. We can redefine and restructure the family and there will be no natural consequences to that, no psychological consequences or physical consequences, emotional consequences to children. Um, Everything can be, every natural process can be rearranged based on the newest political and social dogma and everything will be fine. They always uh, they always denigrate and disregard human nature. That's why they always try to move towards communism, for example, where people don't have property rights and there is no natural family where the state replaces all of those things and it doesn't end up 
working because property rights, even supply and demand, providing for yourself and your family is actually a part of human nature. Working to provide for yourself and your family is actually a part of human nature as we see in the creation account. Before the fall, Adam is put into the garden to work and to keep it. All these things are part of human nature. God tells us they're a part of human nature and leftism because it denies God as the authority over all of these things, says that biology and uh, human nature and natural processes in the natural formation of the family, for example, those are all very arbitrary things and we can rearrange them as society sees fit to create this new social political order. And it just never works. It always leads to chaos and violence, as we've seen in every kind of communist revolution, as we've talked a lot about uh, on this podcast. And society typically ends up, after much suffering and death, writing itself and getting back to biblical values, whether they call it that or or not, because this is God's world. It functions how he wants it to function. And so for people who are who call themselves progressive Christians, who say that, yeah, I believe that God is our father. I believe that God created the heavens and the earth, but I also believe that, you know, gender is fluid. I also believe that there is no real definition of biblical of biblical marriage or uh, the nuclear family. I, I believe that, sure, the, the government can get bigger and that there doesn't need to be a natural family and that uh, we don't have to own property. Well, you can say that you believe that God is the authority, but actually you are taking on worldly definitions of all of these things and you're denying the authority of God and you're not realizing that everything that God does and says in his word is purposeful. It is intentional and it has implications for our lives today. So it's actually very important for us to realize that even from the creation account, and we see this throughout the biblical canon, that everything God does is very intentional. It is by process. It is systematic. It is thoughtful. It is careful. It is creative. And he cares very much about the physical world as well as about the spiritual world. And he doesn't separate those two things in a dualistic way, the way that humanism does. Those things are intertwined. We read that there's going to be a resurrection of the bodies, that we're not just going to float on to this ethereal place, but actually that there's going to be a new heaven and a new physical earth. Um, And so God cares very much about those things, even more than the world does. God doesn't deny human nature. He doesn't try to rewrite human nature. Everything that God says is good is in compliance with human nature because he created it. And what we see over and over again is that the biblical ethic is better. The biblical view of the world is actually more compassionate. It is more practical. It leads to more human flourishing than any other worldview. And there have been an adoption of other worldviews, but they never end up working. They always end up taking away people's freedom and taking away people's flourishing. We hear that secular humanism is actually much more compassionate, that it's much more liberating, um, and that if we just need to liberate ourselves from the archaic and oppressive biblical view of morality and definitions of gender and sexuality and marriage and and right and wrong and all of that, what we find is that when we move outside of that, we actually move uh, we actually move into a realm of, for example, eugenics and policies that actually deny 
inherent human uh, dignity. And one example of this is what is happening to Down syndrome children in the womb throughout the world. And so uh, The Atlantic wrote this article, The Last Children of Down Syndrome, Prenatal Testing is Changing Who Gets Born and Who Doesn't. This is just the beginning. Now, I do want to uh, take note of that language, who gets born and who doesn't. It's actually who gets killed and who doesn't. Because as gruesome as this is going to sound and trigger warning, this is uh, violent and it's obviously morbid because we're talking about abortion. Um, aborted babies get born. They do. Like they have to leave the womb, whether it is surgically, whether it is because uh, a woman expels the child uh, after she took a pill, whether it is induced labor. An aborted child gets born. You just give birth to a dead baby. Um, and so, and so this language is not even scientifically correct. It is once again, as all pro-abortion and, and pro-choice arguments do, it's use of euphemism. It's actually a manipulation of the language to try to sterilize abortion, to make it sound, uh, more moral, to make it sound more normal and okay. The fact of the matter is, is that Down syndrome babies, all babies that get aborted are still born. So they're actually using very mystical terms when they say who gets born and who doesn't. It's no, this is deciding prenatal testing. What they mean by this is changing who gets killed and who doesn't. They don't want to use the word killed because that would actually make them admit uh, that that would make them admit that abortion is the killing of a child, which it very factually is. The article goes on to talk about in Denmark how there's such a high rate of abortion of um, of unborn babies. And they actually use the term unborn children uh, in this article, which again just shows the cognitive dissonance when pro-choicers are talking about abortion. But there's a high rate of abortion in Denmark. They're the cover, and we'll show this on YouTube, the cover of the, the story is a picture. And it just makes you want to cry looking at it of this Beautiful girl, maybe six years old with Down syndrome. It looks like they have their their parents' hand on their head. And it's terrifying to me that they use this picture of this beautiful girl, clearly made in the image of God, just as much value as you and me, of more values than many sparrows, as Jesus says in Matthew 10, and goes on to talk about how the so-called eradication of Down syndrome is happening across Europe, not just in Denmark, uh, through abortion, through the killing of these babies and prenatal testing, which is widely accessible in places like Denmark, is not allowing this to happen, but really encouraging this to happen. This is what happens when a society steps away from the biblical ethic on life. The biblical ethic on life is that all human beings are made in the image of God, that we all have souls that will live forever in one of two places. And uh, the only time we see in the creation account that God says something that's very good rather than just good is the creation of male and female in his image. We believe as Christians that uh, the person with Down syndrome, the person with severe special needs who is not able to function on their own the way that uh, people with Down syndrome are, the people who have severe health complications, who many people, secularists in the medical world would call vegetables, would even question the personhood of, we believe that that person with severe special needs who is unable to do anything on their own is going to have to uh, be fed by feeding you their whole life, is going to have to be taken care of by caretakers, their parents, their family for their entire life, that that person is more valuable than the strongest racehorse, than the the most valiant animal. Uh, We believe that that person, because they are made in the image of God, 
because they have a soul in a way that animals don't, uh, because they were made in the likeness of the Trinity, as the Bible tells us, um, in our, our own special way, that that person, no matter their disability, no matter what they can contribute to society, is more valuable than any animal, than any other part of creation. And that is why people like Margaret Sanger, who started Planned Parenthood, who was a renowned eugenicist, uh, that is why she and others like her believed and said that the Christian religion is the biggest impediment to eugenics. There was a big movement, as The Atlantic talks about, in the 20th century towards eugenics, that America practiced eugenics thanks to Planned Parenthood and thanks to Margaret Sanger, thanks to the birth control movement, the forced sterilization of people that they believed would produce children that would be diseased and wouldn't contribute to society. The Nazis borrowed those uh, borrowed those tactics from Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood uh, and a eugenicist here. And so did the rest of Europe, including Denmark. So that eugenicist movement, uh, which a lot of people would call ableist because it's discriminating against people with special needs who are deemed imperfect uh, by uh, by society and by the elites, uh, that is still happening not just in Europe, but also in here. The rate of abortion for people with Down syndrome is something like 60%. In Iceland, it's about 98 to 99%. And articles a couple of years ago that were reporting on this were talking about how this is a good thing. You're eradicating Down syndrome. This is against the Christian ethic because we believe people with Down syndrome or any special need is just as valuable as you or as me. We do not weigh people's value by what they contribute to society. Unfortunately, communism and socialism, these are humanist, godless ideologies. You can read Karl Marx and you will see how much he hates religion. Vladimir Lenin hated religion, hated Christianity because Christianity has always been the mortal enemy of tyranny. It's always been the moral mortal enemy of socialism, always been the mortal enemy of communism. So again, Christians who say that they adopt these two ideologies, you don't understand that you are holding two completely contradictory worldviews. They were never made to coincide. Communism and socialism, leftism, humanism, materialism, these ideologies are anti-God. They're anti-Christ. And uh, one of the ways that we see that is through eugenics. Because look, if the state is taking care of everyone, if everything is dependent upon people contributing to society to then redistribute the profit of their work to the government so the government can redistribute it to everyone else, or I should say distribute your profit to the government so they can redistribute it to everyone else, then you can't have a whole lot of burdens on society. You can't have a whole lot of burdens on the medical system if everyone is supposed to be contributing to pay for it. It just doesn't work. And so that's why you always see when the government gets bigger, when God gets smaller, you don't just see tyranny, but you see the so-called eradication of people who are a, quote, burden on society. That's what happens when you adopt a godless worldview. People get killed. Things like Nazism happen. Eugenics happen. Planned Parenthood happens. By the way, Planned Parenthood is still accomplishing the purpose that it was started to accomplish by Margaret Sanger, the eradication of not just people with special needs, but anyone who the elites deem undesirable. Unfortunately, 
that is disproportionately black and brown babies in this country. And it should tell you something that organizations like Black Lives Matter and all of these leftists and Democrats who talk about systemic racism also support Planned Parenthood, who was started by an avowed white supremacist whose mission was eugenics and that is still being accomplished today around the world via abortion, especially here in the United States, disproportionately towards black and brown babies. So if the people who are crying out about white supremacy, the Black Lives Matter activists, are not also talking about this, are not talking about how the way of eugenics, especially via Planned Parenthood, is disproportionately targeting young women in minority communities, then you shouldn't be taking them seriously. That tells you they're more about left-wing ideology than they are about black lives. So I want you to think about where you stand on all of these issues. Is the creator of the, heaven, uh, the heavens and the earth your authority? Or is ideology your authority? Is left-wing ideology your authority? And have you said that social justice is, you know, the way of Christianity, but really you have found yourself adopting views that are anti-God, adopting ideologies, humanism, communism, socialism, materialism, eugenics that are anti-God. They all go together. They all go together and you have been fooled. You've been hoodwinked as a progressive Christian into thinking that you can match your Christianity with these ideologies. There's a reason why you Christian, professing Christian, when you move to the left politically, why you started to question if Jesus was really the only way to God. Why you started to question if Christianity is really the only way. Why you started to question basic morality. There's a reason for that because your politics if you are a socialist, communist, leftist, cannot coincide with biblical Christianity. And so you've started to give way on things like abortion. You've started to be apathetic towards things like eugenics. You have started to not really care about the things that God cares about. There's a reason for that. Those two things cannot coincide. Uh, Psalm 139, 14 through 16 makes this very clear that all human beings, no matter your needs, no matter your special needs, by the way, we all have particular special needs. Like we all have differences. We all have weaknesses. Uh, we all have some kind of neurodiversity. I am not more valuable. You are not more valuable than the person who has autism, than the person who has Down syndrome. Not, not in God's eyes. Thank the Lord for that. What a compassionate and good God we serve. So much more merciful than the God of the government or the God of self, right? Like it is such a joy to be able to worship that kind of compassionate and merciful God that of course the world is going to call merciless and mean. We can't out-compassion God, you guys. Psalm 139, 14 through 16 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That's how much God cares about life inside the womb. He creates it. He plans it. He knows it intimately. Even the lives, even the babies whose spinal cords are snipped, even the babies who die because a doctor inserts a needle into the womb in order to force them into cardiac arrest. That is how second trimester abortions happen. And then the dead baby is taken out of the womb. Even the babies who are starved and poisoned by the abortion pill, God knows those babies. He formed those babies. He was sovereign over the conception of those babies. He cares about them. He cares about them. And if we are Christians who are called to imitate God, which we are, we should care about them too. Then we've got um, pastor, reverend, and I put that in scare quotes for a reason. 
Warnock, Raphael Warnock, who is running for Senate uh, in Georgia against Kelly Loeffler, the Republican. He tweets this, I'm a pro-choice pastor, and I believe that a hospital room is way too small for a woman, her doctor, and the United States government. It's too small for God, pastor? What about that? Does he factor into this decision of killing unborn babies? I mean, he's trying to be clever. He's trying to be cute. There's nothing clever or cute about advocating for the unrestricted access to killing babies that are made in the image of God. This person is no pastor, by the way, just an aside, like he was arrested. uh, I think it was 2003 for obstructing the investigation by the police into child abuse that happened at a church camp where he worked, arrested for obstructing investigation into child abuse. And he has not apologized for it. He has not repented of it. He just denies it, even though he was arrested for it. He is currently in a a dispute with his now ex-wife, who he was married to for only three years. She accused him of running uh, over her foot with a car. We don't know if that's true. That's what she accused him of. They're in some kind of custody battle, battle over their kids after only a three-year marriage and then a divorce. He is um, avowedly, he talked about how uh, how Marxism is good in one of his sermons. He talked about how cops are terrorists in one of his sermons, and I can link the citations to that. And now he says, I'm a pro-choice pastor, and I believe that in a hospital room is way too small for a woman, her doctor in the United States government, that it's such terrible logic. Are you saying that the government doesn't have any authority to say that we shouldn't kill someone, has no authority to say that we shouldn't murder someone? Because if that is your argument, uh, a complete libertarian argument that the government really has no role at all, and I know most libertarians are pro-life, but I'm going on the extreme. If you are an anti-government activist, you might believe, sure, that the government doesn't have any role at all uh, in protecting innocent life. But the thing with people like Warnock is that he believes that the government has the power to tell you to do anything. He believes openly that the government has the power to take away your guns, that the government has the power to take care of you, uh, to take care of your life. The government should have more power and more money. He's a far left-wing Democrat. He is an admirer of every left-wing dictator that you can think of. But the government apparently doesn't have the power to protect the lives of defenseless unborn babies. And he calls himself a pastor. He doesn't care at all about babies who are made in the image of God in the womb. He doesn't care at all that Planned Parenthood was was founded by a white supremacist and that a disproportionate number of black and brown children are killed via abortion. Georgia, you're not going to vote for this person, are you? Christians, please don't be fooled by this person who calls himself a reverend and has abandoned the idea that God created the heavens and the earth and therefore says what is and what isn't, what's right and what's wrong. All kinds of people call themselves Christians and don't actually believe that. This person, it seems like, worships the God of self. So not only is he a bad politician, a terrible seeming person, I don't know, but seeming person based on what we know, he's also a false teacher. I can't I can't even imagine how dangerous it would be for that kind of person to be to be in power. But this is what happens. These are the kinds of contradictory and theologically terrible and blasphemous ideas that pastors, that government leaders and that the populace takes on when you abandon the idea that God is in control. What also happens is that we start to redefine very basic things like what is a man and what is a woman? You probably saw Harry Styles on the cover of Vogue wearing a dress and Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro and some other people 
uh, called it out and said, look, this is... This is making masculinity a laughing stock. This is not good for society. And leftists absolutely freaked out and said, yes, it is good for society without thinking at all what happens uh, to society when we allow the mass sissification of men. Now, am I Am I personally affected by what Harry Styles wears? Do I want to outlaw him deciding what he wears? No, I am not advocating for that at all. In fact, there have been several photo shoots of men wearing dresses. I think it was 20 to 25 years ago that Brad Pitt was wearing a dress on the cover of some some magazine. So going beyond what Harry Styles is wearing on the cover of Vogue, because I don't really care, I do think, obviously, that this disintegration of the natural biological definitions of male and female are going to have a terrible effect, not just on individuals and especially children who are always the most vulnerable to left-wing ideology, especially via teachers unions and the left-wing organizations that target them, as well as ignorant and apathetic parents, um, but also to society as a whole. Here's the here's here's the truth. And we see this reiterated in God's word. We see this reiterated throughout history. This is just the truth that society needs two things to just survive and not even talking about thriving, just survive. You need women to have babies and you need men to be strong. You need them to be able to defend and provide. Not all women have to have babies for society to survive. Not all women are going to have babies because God calls a a lot of people to be single. God doesn't allow some people to have babies, but in order for societies to just survive, to, to carry on to the next generation, those two things have to exist. A large number of women have to have babies or a good number of women have to have a lot of babies and men have to be able to defend and to provide and to protect not just their families and communities, but our nation as a whole. They have to be able to lead. If we don't have those two things, then we're toast just factually as a nation. And again, I'm not even talking about uh, thriving as a nation, which I think is uh, the the requirement of that is actually having proper roles and a proper view of femininity and masculinity. But uh, women have to have babies. Men have to be strong. They have to protect. And there's some there's some margin there. There's some room for radical feminists to rail against that in a surviving society. There's some room for some sissy men uh, in a surviving in a surviving society. They don't. Not all men and women need to be the same and to have the same roles and responsibilities in order for society to survive. But in order for us to survive and thrive, there have to be enough women who embrace femininity in that way. And there have to be enough men to embrace masculinity in that way. Are we in danger of losing that, of losing that plurality that is necessary for a society to survive? Maybe. I do think that there are powers that be, as we talked about on Friday, um, through radical sex education and the leftism that seeks to disintegrate all that is good, including the nuclear family, including the gender dichotomy, including the traditional role of male and female. Uh, I do think that uh, they are at work to break all of those things down, to make people isolated, to make people dumb, to make people sexually uh, confused and messed up and mentally unwell and 
and unstable in order to create an easy to control proletariat. I don't think that's a conspiracy theory. I think that we can very easily look at the policies of some of these left wing organizations and politicians and see the the end goal there. Again, this is what happens when you give authority to earthly authorities that deny human nature and deny God's authority rather than following God's definitions of what is and what is not. The Bible actually gives a very radical take, um, especially for that time of men and women and specifically of wives and husbands. People often think of the biblical definitions of, of, of marriage and sexuality is so archaic and restrictive and burdensome, and we need to liberate ourselves from those things. But actually, for most of human history, uh, women, and especially wives, have been viewed as property. That's not a feminist take. That's just true, especially in secular societies. They have been seen as nothing more than gestators, nothing more um, than servants of their husband and servants of their household. And it is actually Christianity that obliterates that. It's actually Christianity that doesn't replace the patriarchy, but says, here's a good patriarchy that is actually best for everyone. Because look, someone has to lead. Uh, But we believe that in marriage and in society, that uh, women should be treated with dignity, made uh, in the image of God. We see that in something like Ephesians 5, which today our sensibilities are offended by this because we're like, oh, how dare How dare uh, Paul, God through Paul, said that wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. But actually, if you read the context, and especially in the context of this point in history, uh, what I'm about to read was so radical in the way of protecting and caring for and cherishing women that the people there would have thought that this was some uh, some some crazy movement towards egalitarianism. And now, of course, the feminists balk at this and think that it's so crazy. But this actually just shows how much God cares equally for women. Ephesians 5, uh, 20, uh, 22 through 26. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. I actually realized that I pulled the NIV for this. Typically, I use ESV. But for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, uh, of which he is the Savior. Now is the church submits to Christ. So also, wives should submit to their husbands and everything. And so everyone freaks out. But then you read verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So calling men, husbands, to sacrificial love, laying down their lives— for their wives, not treating their wives as property, not saying that, hey, your wife is just your object of sexual pleasure or just a servant for you. But no, you're to love your wife as Christ loved you. And guess what? Christ died for you on the cross so that you could be saved to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. We actually see this throughout the New Testament, that husbands are told to love and to cherish their wives. This was This was a radical thing. 1 Corinthians 7, 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That was crazy back then. People thought that men had authority over all of women and that husbands had authority over their wives, that they could take sexual pleasure when they saw fit, basically raping their wives. And 1 Corinthians is speaking against that. It's saying, no, the the wife is a human being. She has a soul and she doesn't belong to herself. The wife doesn't. And the husband doesn't belong to his his self. You belong to one another. You are in mutual submission, especially sexually in this context, to one another. This would have been radical. The Bible 
loves men and women equally. There are different roles for men and women. We can see in Proverbs 31 that the responsibility that the woman has surrounds taking care of her house um, and taking care of her home and her household. But we see such praise of that woman that her children rise up and call her blessed. Verse 28 says her husband also, when he praises her, It says a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. We see that God loves masculinity and femininity. He loves the unique roles and the unique responsibilities and the unique strengths that he gives to men and women far more than the world does. Like God loves us better than we do. God honors women better than feminism does. He values masculinity more than society does. And he made men and women biologically different for a specific purpose purpose. He did not give us our genders arbitrarily. He didn't say, hey, you can mix it up. This kind of stuff is fluid. Gender and sex are different. That's not what we read in the creation account. That's not what we read throughout history. That's not what Jesus says in Matthew 19 when he says, have you not read that he, God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. All that hogwash that Jesus never talked about gender and sexuality or, uh, or marriage. Matthew 19 completely obliterates that myth. Yes, he does. Plus, Jesus is God. And John 1 says that he was God in the beginning. The word was God. So Jesus is also, he is uh, an equal person in the Trinity, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He Uh, He created the creation account. He created them male and female. He has the the authority uh, to say what is and what isn't. And so people try to separate Jesus from God and saying Jesus didn't care about all of these things. Well, Jesus is God. Anything that God says that he cares about throughout the biblical canon, Jesus automatically cares about too. That's another way that so-called progressive Christianity uh, breaks down. So God has a specific purpose for our anatomy, for our biology. He cares about it. He created it again with process, with specificity. It's not arbitrary. It is not up to our own determination. It's not determined by our feelings or by our emotions. But he says that societies need masculinity, that they need femininity, that men and women complement one another. And that there is a good way for uh, husbands to lead wives in a way that cherishes them and loves them. The biblical ethic on marriage and on gender is far more compassionate, far more logical, uh, and far more and, and far better for society and for families and for communities than any secular or humanist ethic uh, that we could possibly have. And so, we should not be ashamed of that. That history shows us that's true. That the Bible shows us that's true. The founders were not ashamed of that. The founders did get a lot of things wrong, by the way, in this idea that all men were created equal. They obviously didn't fully believe that about women at the time. They didn't believe that about Africans at the time. And so the founders did not see this picture fully, and they didn't have the gift of history that we do. But now we are able to look at the Word of God and to look at all the history we have behind us and say, okay, yes, God's way is better. And when we get closer to that, good things happen. The abolition of slavery happened because we got closer to the biblical ethic on humanity. That, wow, human beings, no matter their race, no matter their background, no matter their socioeconomic class in other parts of history, they are equal in the eyes of God and should be equal under the eyes of the law. Good things happen when societies get closer to God's biblical ethic on human nature and what humans is oh, humans are. We take care of the vulnerable better, not 
through the government and through more bureaucracy, but churches and individuals. We take up that responsibility. We care for the, for the vulnerable. We care for the unborn child. We care for the mom. We care for the widow. We care for uh, the orphan. We care for the traditionally marginalized. We care for equal justice. Uh, we care about the family and communities better when we align with God's authority. And as long as we rebel against that, we will see chaos and we will see the efforts to replace God's authority with the government's authority. And as I've said so many times, the government makes a really bad God. The government makes a really bad God, a really unmerciful God. So all of this said, do not be ashamed to say that you follow the King of Kings. Jesus is King, by the way, is a political statement. It's always been a political statement, as I've heard Jeff Durbin say. Jesus is Lord has been the have been the three words that have scared tyrants and made them shake in their boots for all of history, especially since the Protestant Revel, uh, Reformation. And we are called to say that now, that yes, we are called to pray for our leaders, to submit to our leaders as much as we can. But we push back against anything that goes against God's law. And right now, right now, we still have the voice to do that. We still have the freedom to do that. That doesn't mean that I'm advocating for a theocratic dictatorship to where people have to conform to uh, to what the Bible says. That would be a violation of the First Amendment. I'm not trying to establish a national church. But uh, the way of society and our basic laws should reflect the morality of the only moral lawgiver that exists. People often say, well, you know, Christianity and the Bible shouldn't affect society. Well, secularism does. That's a belief system. That's a worldview. Secularism isn't neutral, by the way. Atheism is not neutral. It has its own moral code. The question is, which one is better, God's law or human's law? And I think we've seen throughout the 20th century when humans replace God's law with their own law, it leads to communism and socialism and, and suffering and eugenics and the uh, reconfiguration of the family, which ends to suffering. And so we shouldn't be afraid to fight for that and to vouch for that. Secularism is not neutral. And it takes the vac and it fills the vacuum that is left when we Christians decide that we are no longer going to stick up for our views, that we are no longer going to say that God is the authority over all of these things. So don't be ashamed when you're speaking about this stuff. You literally have the God of the universe who created all of these things on your side. You also have history on your side. You always and you also have science on your side. God created science. It's never going to be truly at odds with the God who created it. Um, you have these things on your side, whether or not mainstream society tells you to so do not be ashamed to teach these things to your children. The best thing that you, that we can teach to our children is that this is our father's world. He created it and he loves you and he created you for a special purpose. He created you with intention. He created you with specificity. He put you where he did, how he did, why he did on purpose. He created you, your body, your mind, exactly how he wanted to. You are made in the image of God. You have a soul that's going to live forever. And if you put your faith in Jesus by grace through faith, then uh, we get to enjoy eternity forever. Uh, I know that's uh, repetitive. Um, in the presence of a holy God to whom we are reconciled by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. We have to teach our children those things, that God is the authority, that there's going to be a lot of people who say a lot of stupid things, a lot of bad politicians, a lot of bad teachers, a lot of bad friends out there. Don't be scared of them. 
and don't shy away from them, but know whose authority you are under and who takes care of you and who says what is right and wrong. Uh, That is the only way to push back against tyranny. It's the only way to push back against totalitarianism. It's the only way to push back against perversion and immorality and all of the corruption that is plaguing our country. There's a lot of evil in the world. We are salt and light and God did not did not place us where he did and when he did arbitrarily. Remember, he doesn't do anything arbitrarily. He does things through uh, obedience and process. And he has predestined us to live where we live right now. He has given you the children that he has given you for a reason. He has placed you in the state, in the city, in the school district that he has placed you in for a specific reason. This is our father's world. We are his ambassadors here for a short amount of time to obey him. That's it. That's where our confidence comes from. That's where our peace comes from. That's where our joy comes from as well. I hope that's encourages you and motivates you and reminds you uh, where our calling actually comes from and where our authority actually is. Okay, I'll see you back here on Wednesday.